archaeologist, and the first thing that I want to say about archaeology is that it's not just about old things. Archaeology is really the study of stuff and space, and it's the study of the way we as a human species have gotten to be the species that has so much stuff and space all around us. In order to understand where we are today, what we want to do is first roll the clock way back to about a million and a half years ago, to our first Paleolithic ancestors. And although humans are not the only species that use tools, for example, chimpanzees will use a stick to fish out termites, or bowerbirds will collect things and make a nest, we do know that humans were the ones to make the first durable tools and to have an engagement with their landscape that is constantly manifested in material culture. So let's take the first artifacts that we know of that are of any degree of sophistication. And that's the thing called a hand axe. So a hand axe is a stone tool and it's about the size of your two palms put together like this and it's sharpened all the way around the edges. And people started making these about a million and a half years ago. And the production process of these is actually fairly difficult. We'd have a hard time making one today. You have to take a piece of stone and you have to whack away at it and turn it over. And it's bifacial, which means that you have to continually modify as you're making this object. And that type of form is something that we see not only in Africa, which was the original ancestral homeland of our species, but also all the way in Europe and over to the Arabian Peninsula and into the Indian subcontinent. And wherever you find these things, they look remarkably similar. So I knew this as a researcher, but it didn't really dawn on me how striking that similarity was until I saw some examples from the Indian subcontinent. And they look exactly like the ones that are being made in Africa and the ones that are being made in Europe. So obviously a million and a half years ago, people are not walking around and distributing something from one continent to the next. These are a kind of idea that are being manifested and manufactured by many, many thousands of people. So a hand axe looks like it could be a sort of practical tool, but we don't really know exactly how it was used. It seems to have a lot of sharp edges all around it in a way that's a little counterintuitive for a useful object. Mm -hmm. So more interestingly, more recently, people have thought about what if these are social kinds of activities? What if these are social expressions and not just physical or economic expressions? So people like Stephen Mython, for example, have talked about the social encoding of hand axes as tools that were used for performance and for display. And one of the reasons that we think that that might be the case is that not only do we find these identical objects in different parts of Europe and Asia and Africa, but we also find them in abundance beyond their utility. So at places like Boxgrove in England or Alorgasile in Kenya, what we have is hand axes that are in abundance, in profusion, and they're not very used. It's though people were making these for the sake of making them and then discarding them in large quantities. 
So what if a hand axe was a kind of social calling card? What if it was something that let the person say that they were a fully functioning member of a particular society? Or maybe even a babe magnet, something that was the equivalent of a Ferrari in ancient times. There were no such things. But the idea that if somebody could craft a good hand axe, that was a sign of being a good mate, of somebody who could carry a project through from start to finish. So even those basic artifacts of the past lead us to think about the ways in which people's social investments and economic activities are all wrapped up into the same cognitive package. Let's fast forward now to about 100,000 years ago and think about what kinds of artifact diversity people were engaged with. One of the next things that comes along in the human repertoire is ornamentation. And so we know from about 120 or 150,000 years ago, people are using ochre as probably a form of body decoration. We find you know, little pieces of it in caves in South Africa or in other parts where such things are preserved. And then by about 90,000 years ago, we start to get beads. And beads, unlike hand axes, have no practical economic purpose. They are always about communicating something to somebody. And the archaeologist Mary Steiner has done a very nice study of the distribution of early beads in places like the Anatolian Plateau and in North Africa. And she's come up with a very nice concept to explain how it is that you see the same thing in so many different places, the same kinds of beads, the same kinds of shells, chosen to make those beads. And she's talked about the concept of bandwidth as a way of communication. So think about how we use ornamentation today as a mode of communication. You can see many different kinds of earrings on people. Of course, nowadays, nose rings and other things too. You see many different kinds of earrings, but all of those earrings are communicating something. They're all in the same bandwidth of understanding. So if somebody has a diamond stud, that communicates one thing. If somebody has a big gauge and a tattoo, that communicates something else. But all of those are within the same range of communication, right? If somebody were to wear uh, a cup over their ear, nobody would know what's being communicated there because it's not within that same range of bandwidth. Another way of thinking about it is grammar as a way of structuring individual utterances or individual performative acts with material culture. So if we think about something like that communication, one thing that's important about small stuff like beads is, as Steiner points out, the idea of amplitude or loudness. If you're wearing one bead, that communicates something to your group. You've made it, you traded for it, you bartered for it, somebody gave it to you. But if you're wearing a whole string of beads, what you're able to do is to communicate more loudly. And that sense of amplitude in communication is also something that underwrites our own understanding and use of material culture today. So if you are looking in your closet and you're wondering why you have six pairs of jeans and 20 pairs of shoes, you can thank your Paleolithic ancestors for engaging with the first beginnings of a diversity in material culture that leads us to being the species with so much stuff and the species that has so much spatial need to 
keep our things in different places. So all of that brings me to the study of urbanism because what we have in the modern day is the result of this long trajectory of human interactions with stuff and with space in increasingly complicated ways with increasing amplitude or loudness of communication that has led to the urban form not only as we know it now but as it was originally invented. So if we continue our thought process of chronology from the hand axe at a million and a half years ago to ornamentation by about 90,000 years ago to the development of agriculture about 12 or 10,000 years ago at the beginning of the Holocene to the beginnings of cities, what we see is this accelerated pattern of social and economic integrations with material culture that in the urban form crystallized into this intense network of interactions. And as an archaeologist, that's what I'm interested in. What was that tipping point between a perfectly reasonable small-scale village life to increased interactions in cities that are really a very counterintuitive social creation? Because what is it that you do when you give, get into a city? You give up control over a lot of things. You give up control over who your neighbors are. All of us who live in cities have this experience. You give up control over your food resources. In a village, you know where your next meal is coming from. The field is there, the cow is there, the chickens are running around back. But in a city, you really don't know where your next meal is coming from. Cities are too crowded spaces are too small for you to have a year's worth of grain sitting in your house. You don't have the space to keep a cow. Your neighbors are not going to like you keeping chickens. So what you do instead is you make that leap of faith. When you move into the city, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, but you trust that it's going to be there. You trust that there's going to be more than one place to get a meal this shop or that shop, this itinerant vendor or that itinerant vendor, this marketplace or that marketplace. And where they get their stuff is of no concern to you whatsoever. Where that vendor gets her bananas, you don't know and you don't care. Where that sandwich was made, where the bread baker lived, you don't care. It doesn't matter to you. And that is the leap of faith that is all about urbanism. And not only is that leap of faith something that we saw once in a dusty plain in Mesopotamia where the first city started 6,000 years ago, but we see the same patterns over and over and over again. So as an archeologist, I can tell you that no matter where you see cities, ancient, modern, in between, they are remarkably similar in their outlines. And this makes me wonder about whether cities, like many other things in our cognitive repertoire, are maybe hardwired into our ability to deal with other people. Because cities are very young. 
in the human historical repertoire. Right. So the first cities that we know of archaeologically are about 6,000 years old, and that's in Mesopotamia. And we have an independent development of cities in other parts of the world as well. So in Mesoamerica by about two and a half thousand years ago, and in South America. And these were all independent inventions, which suggests that the city form is something that was the only potential solution for questions of how to get large numbers of people coordinated. So the sense of potential hardwiring for urbanism at once does two things for us. First of all, it makes us a little nervous, maybe, that humans are not as creative as we thought they were. But secondly, it really fits in with a long-term trajectory of how people deal with material culture. So that the making of objects is something that enabled people to communicate in circumstances of developing linguistic capacity. And then when you had larger groups of people moving around the landscape, the idea of ornamentation came up independently in so many areas as ways of enabling people to assess each other even at a distance. And then as populations became more concentrated, probably as a result of other changes happening in the Holocene, where you have areas that are becoming drier, so populations are getting funneled into areas that are shrinking in size, a classic example being the Nile Valley, that the Sahara used to be green and lush, which it certainly is no longer, and that you had people then kind of getting narrowed into the Nile Valley, where you had them come up with the same solution. Either they were going to fight over everything all the time, or they were going to stay put and grow food. So as that process of concentration, mixed now with senses of opportunity, as people are capitalizing on interactions within an urban realm, to experiment a little bit more with the kinds of objects that they're making, to grow that bandwidth a little bit more, to engage in entrepreneurship, to engage in new forms of communication, to have opportunities that occur when you have the synergy of large groups of people coming together. That happened over and over and over again. So that this sense of there being no other way than cities to get people integrated, communicating, achieving consensus in a small space tells us that we have nowhere else to go as a species. We cannot imagine inventing another kind of settlement configuration. Cities are it. And they've been a million years in the making. However subtly, we are the products of that long period of cognitive, social, economic building blocks that result in the urban form today. So as an archaeologist, I've had the good fortune of working in a variety of different urban centers in North Africa, in the Roman Mediterranean world, and most principally in the Indian subcontinent, where I do most of my research today. And like all archaeological research, um, 
excavation, survey, remote sensing. It's really a team effort. And so I want to very much acknowledge and celebrate my colleagues and collaborators in India, particularly Professor R.K. Mohanty of India's Deccan College, with whom I've been working for more than the last 10 years or so uh, with a great team of Indian scholars and students to investigate what happens at ancient urban centers. And on the basis of that investigation, and looking at other urban centers in other parts of the world, you see these commonalities. So urban centers, both past and present, have big monumental architecture that is a symbol, often of something that's not very practical, like the Eiffel Tower comes to mind, um, but that often encodes something that is ritual or political as a symbol of urban life. They have big open plazas, places where large numbers of people can congregate. And sometimes those congregations are positive and generative, like celebrations or marketplaces. Sometimes there are also places where you have riots um, or various forms of political oppression. So you have that area of monumentality, you have places of elite residences, whether it's palaces or high-end houses, you have shanty towns, often some of the most difficult things to find archaeologically. You can find a palace or temple or pyramid quite easily. But if you want to find the shanty towns of ephemeral architecture where there were wooden structures and maybe places made of reused scavenged materials, then you're going to have to look in the dirt very carefully for the traces of those things. And archaeologists have done that a lot more recently in terms of looking for those traces of ephemeral occupation and recognizing that cities are much larger and more complex than what the pyramid or the temple or the palace alone would potentially lead you to expect. And so that's one of the great things about contemporary archaeology is that we're looking at whole urban centers. Sometimes this is made possible by long-term excavation projects. Urban centers are so large that no one can expect to excavate a city, even a fraction of one, in a whole career lifetime. So we really rely on long-term research studies often done by people who are our predecessors. Um, the site of Shishapalgar, where I've been working in India, is a site that was first excavated in the 1940s, and excavators everywhere make use of the notes and the perceptions of their predecessors to try to piece together these massive urban sites that, that we try to understand. Another thing that has really revolutionized archaeology is a variety of remote sensing the most exciting of which recently is something called LIDAR. It's uh, light detection and ranging, and it's a kind of mapping that involves an airplane and a radar-mounted um, apparatus that can then take large-scale aerial views. But the great thing is that it can see through vegetation. And it's completely revolutionized studies of urban centers in Mesoamerica. So you can imagine the jungles of the Yucatan had many structures beyond those pyramids and temples that we can see because they stick up out of the jungle. Now we can really get a sense of how all those cities were integrated. Um, people like Arlen Chase and Diane Chase are even talking about things like suburbs in ancient cities, which makes them even closer to our own experience of urban life in the present day.
So now we understand that cities are not just what the leader is proposing in the making of a monument. We understand that ancient cities are really about people. Large numbers of people, that the synergy of an ancient city, just like the synergy of a modern city, is about the meeting, the interaction, the conflicts, and ultimately the consensus of large numbers of unrelated people focusing in on a physical space accompanied by a lot of stuff in order to result in a living situation that is much more exciting, much more dynamic, and much more integrated than the rural life that came before. Right. You know, archaeology is the best discipline there is because it's a little bit of everything. We have, in some cases, ancient texts that come in from the humanities side that describe what it's like to live in an ancient city. We have, for example, Roman writers who complain in ways that sound very familiar. They complain about the traffic in the streets being too loud to sleep at night. They complain about filth as you walk through the alleyways. Um, we have, from the social science side, we have these broad generalizing paradigms that enable us to think about commonalities and contrasts from one place to the next. And then, of course, the thing that people often hear about in archaeology and new discoveries, the science side of it, in which we are inveterate borrowers. We are always looking to see how do geologists look under the ground. We are always looking to see how do geneticists take material from dog teeth or rat bones or human skeletons to understand patterns of migration. We are always looking to chemists to see about how we can take a potsherd and find out what it was that was stuck to the inside of it. So archaeologists are always borrowing from all of these different disciplines and I think that archaeologists are ideally positioned to write the human story because we have these interconnected threads. From big science and social science we've got broad scale patterns, but from texts we have that moment of individuality, that moment of communication that sense of agency, which is how urbanism is experienced by everybody. And one of the things we learn from social science is that people, even uneducated people, even migrants with relatively few economic choices, people are very philosophical about what the city means to them. And there have been wonderful examinations of migrants in Cambodia, migrants in Minnesota, wherever you have cities where people sit back and think about their rural life. And they say, in the countryside, it was more peaceful, but we would rather be here. And when we start to peel back the layers of ancient texts, we also see that same kind of sentiment that, for example, the story of the country mouse and the city mouse, that's an Aesop's fable, but it probably actually goes back to India as a trope of thinking about the meaning of urban life. Of course, the tale of the city mouse and the country mouse is well known, that the city mouse goes to the country mouse's house and has a hearty dinner, but it seems rather dull. And then he says, come back to the city, I'll show you what real life is like. And so the country mouse goes to the city and is very impressed 
um, by all the things that, that the city mouse has, all that extra stuff that is incorporated into urban life. Uh, but then the cat comes along and country mouse senses a trap and uh, goes scurrying back out to the country. Most of those fables extolling the virtues of country life are actually written by city people on their brief holidays uh, because once they get back out to the rural setting, they miss the excitement of urban life. And we can see that in ancient texts over and over and over again. We see in art the celebration of that dynamism of urban life. We see in poetry, we see in political treatises, where are the rulers? They are not off living in the countryside. They are living right in the palace in the center of town. So cities are this synergistic place of heightened interaction so that our phrase, bright lights, big city, is not something that is uniquely confined to the modern day. It's something that we can really see in urban settlements, past and present, wherever we find it. The idea of cities as places where individuals can experience a transformation. Now that transformation is not always objectively good. After all, cities are bad for your health. They are crowded, they are dirty, they are polluted. They are prime places for the rapid spread of disease, and that's true not only in the modern world, as we have contemporary fears about Zika and about other types of diseases that tend to be urban-focused because of large numbers of people, um, but that was also true in the past as well. So things like cholera are diseases that spread very rapidly in urban environments. So cities are objectively bad for your health, but once they get going, you cannot keep people out of them. And so people have a sense that their life is going to be better in the city. They have that sense of optimism of life is better in the cities, even if objectively speaking, that's not true. And we can actually trace that in the archeological record. So for example, we can see uh, at sites like, uh, there's a town called Kumbisale, an archeologically excavated site in Africa. And we can see that over time, the rooms get smaller and smaller. So as is the case with our own experience of urbanism, that real estate in the center of town becomes more expensive and places become smaller. We also see the same kinds of things archaeologically. So in ancient Rome, people had three or four story tenement buildings. Um, we had people who were living in crowded, cramped quarters at the ancient city of Shishapalgar, where I've been working. And so we see again these same patterns of adjustment that carry through from one place to the next that are essentially solving a problem of how do you get more and more people crowded into that desirable center of town. So one of the things that has been of particular interest to me recently is how you get the connectivity amongst all of these different constituents in a city. We know that we have high-ranking elites, leaders who promote and organize the development of monumental architecture. We also know that we have vast numbers of ordinary immigrants who are coming in to take advantage of all of the employment, educational, marketing, entrepreneurial opportunities of urban life. And then you have that physical space that becomes the city. And what is it that links all of these physical places together? It's infrastructure. 
infrastructure is, I think, one of the hottest topics in anthropology right now, in addition to being a hot topic with urban planners, because we realize that infrastructure is not just a physical thing. It's a social thing. And you didn't have infrastructure before cities, because in a village, you don't need a superhighway. In a village, you don't need a giant water pipe. Everybody just goes and gets a bucket and gets their own water. You don't need to make a road because everyone just walks on a whatever pathway they make for themselves. You don't need a sewer system because everyone just throws their garbage out the door. And so in that dispersed landscape, there is no need to integrate spatial connections with any kind of formal arrangement. In a city, of course, that doesn't work. From the very beginning of cities, we know that there are pathways that are meant to be clear. We know that there are open spaces that are meant to be unbuilt. We know that there are lines of sight between ritual buildings and politically important places. We know that there are areas of town where lower income people are meant to go. And the thing that connects all of this, the water, the sewage, the pathways, even long prior to the modern day, is infrastructure. And today, of course, we have many other types of infrastructure that we worry about. We think about electric lines, we think about sewers, we think about water pipes, we think about pathways as connectivity within urban areas. And those concerns for infrastructure open up a whole way of thinking about urban life from the ordinary person's perspective. Nobody builds their own infrastructure. You don't build your own highway. You don't build your own train line. You don't build your own water pipe. And you don't build your own sewer. Those things are things that connect you and your household to everybody else sequentially in your neighborhood, in your region, and from the city out into the broader hinterlands. And infrastructure as that physical connective tissue is what I've called a materialized dialogue between people in authority who organize the development of infrastructure and people who are the end users of infrastructure. And it's not just a question of somebody builds the infrastructure and then people use it. You definitely need a leader in the development and implementation of infrastructure. You need some kind of expertise. You need some kind of entrepreneurial thought process that actually organizes the layout and the connectivity. And you also depend on other people for things like maintenance, which is an equally fascinating aspect of infrastructure. Because it's not just the emplacement of infrastructure, the beginning of something, but it's that long-term maintenance. And maintenance is actually a critical aspect of infrastructure development. And it's done by other people working in the direction of an administration. You might be really annoyed at that pothole that you see in the road as you drive down, but you are never going to take a wheelbarrow full of asphalt and go and fix it. 
because that is meant to be somebody else's job. So the sense of infrastructure as a form of dialogue and as a form of communication is one in which there is a kind of constant directionality of communication that works in both ways. So you have leaders who are implementing infrastructure and you have ordinary people who are modifying it, using it, ignoring it, or even destroying it. And as we think about infrastructure as a connective tissue, we can think about how that materialized dialogue involves talking back. So there's some great work that's done by a person named Nikhil Anand, who talks about water infrastructure in Mumbai and other parts of India, which are growing astronomically. Their cities are growing. But of course, infrastructure has a hard time keeping up. And he talks about what he calls leaky states as a statement about the relationship between the government's obligation to provide infrastructure and the recipients of that infrastructure and how they manipulate water connections or electricity connections in order to be able to get what they need out of it. So that the process of dialogue, the process of achieving consensus, is something that is an ongoing one in the urban form. Let's think about how people talk back. So infrastructure is everywhere and it comes with a lot of instructions. You can experience this yourself as you walk down the street. If you start to look at all the places where the city has branded itself, the manhole covers, the light posts, the bus stops, the subway entrances, the parking places, the parking meters, all of a sudden you start to see lots of instructions everywhere. And we're a very text-based society, so these instructions are actually written out for us. You know, don't park here, or 11 to 2, street cleaning Thursdays, um, you know, don't sit here, you know, loading zone only. There's a lot of instructions that are involved in infrastructure. And how do people talk back? They put graffiti on public property. They dump their household trash into park areas where they shouldn't do that. Um, they use open spaces for illicit activities at night when the authorities are not looking. So that the development of infrastructure is not just something that's implanted and envisioned by authorities, it is also utilized in creative and unforeseen ways by residents. Okay, how do we see this in the archaeological record? How do we see that sense of dialogue, of contention, of making consensus through the dialogue between expert knowledge and end users? And how do we see this dialogue in infrastructure through those three aspects of the humanities, the social sciences, and the science? So let me give you some archaeological examples. So if we think about how we get at it through the science of archaeology, how do we understand the ways that people move around a city, the things that we really want to know about, about ancient urban life, about communication, about interaction, and then things like song and dance and debate and dialogue 
are only rarely captured in textual form. So we need to get creative. And one of the most creative and interesting things that I've seen about this use of infrastructure was done by an archaeologist named Scott Branting at the site of Kerkenes, which is in Turkey, and it's from the first millennium BC. And at Kirkenes, we have a great idea of the whole layout of the city because it was occupied for only a relatively short amount of time, and we can see all the different sizes of pathways and roads. In the course of excavation, Scott Branting went and looked at the layers of the streets because as we know, streets sort of accumulate little layers and lenses of dirt and dust. And he went and took a thin section of that, you know, mounted it on a slide, looked at it under a microscope. And his question was, how do we know which pathways were more frequently used than others? And he looked at the particles of dust to see which pathways had more rounded particles from the effect of so many feet walking over them in the course of urban life. So that is the record of many thousands of individual activities that we would never get written down, but that tell us about how people are actually moving through an ancient city. So then let's think about the social science side. And in the excavations at the ancient city of Shishapalgar, working with colleagues and team members, we cited one of our first excavations in an area that was adjacent to the excavations of the 1940s and where we anticipated a long street that was going out to the major monumental gateway of the site. And we put in our excavation trench and, you know, every day as you're excavating, you're walking around and looking and looking and you have an idea in mind. You think, well, you know, this is here, so we're expecting that we should have a structure and we, we were excavating and the structure was there and, you know, we had to be on the inside of a structure because it was right next to where the street was and so this was a little structure and... Yet, as we kept excavating, we found things that didn't quite make sense. We found a little pile of materials from some ancient construction project that had never materialized. We found a kind of little outdoor-looking oven that seemed a little strange that someone would have that in their house. Uh, we found some little bits of debris in a way that suggested it would be rather difficult to walk around on this floor. And that was our operating premise. That was our hypothesis that we had this structure and that we didn't quite understand what people were doing inside of it. And then one day, it became obvious that we were completely wrong. That we were not on the inside of a structure, we were on the outside of a structure. And that meant that the house was actually in the middle of where the road should have been. So what this signaled to us was that at the last phases of the site's occupation, somebody had actually built their house in what should have been the pathway. And there is no quicker way to thumb your nose at the authorities than to build something and live in it in a place where you shouldn't be. So that sense of individuals talking back to the prescriptions of infrastructure suggests that that dynamic of cities always has that kind of 
undercurrent of contention that, of course, also comes up in ethnic conflicts, in migrant resident conflicts, in conflicts about how resources should be expended, conflicts about the placement of infrastructure. So today, when we have implantations of new infrastructure, there is always a dialogue about where it should go and who it should serve. Take the example of a disused rail line. Should it be turned into a pathway to service a particular class of urban inhabitant? Or should it be repurposed as a busway to service another class of urban inhabitant, particularly people who are coming into the city as service workers? If we think about that kind of dialogue as something that would have existed in the past, it really enlivens our sense of urban centers as a purposeful, agentive, deliberate selection of activities on the part of those mass quantities of ordinary inhabitants. So archaeologists always knew why leaders were found in cities. But now we're asking, what are the other 25 or 50,000 people, what are the other million people doing in the city of Rome? What are the other half million people doing at the ancient city of Teotihuacan? Sometimes we get a little glimpse from the humanities. Writing was something that was invented in cities, just like infrastructure. You didn't really need to write things down in a rural village because everyone had the same memories of who owned what as you did. But in cities, you need more administrative mechanisms. You've got more people to communicate with. You've got more directives that need to be shared amongst an administrative hierarchy. You have more things that you want to remember. You have more things that you want to record. And sometimes those recordings are economic texts, as we get in Mesopotamia. Sometimes they're legal texts. And you can see the minutia of people arguing about dividing their household with their brother and who got what, or somebody who was supposed to bring you three sheep and only brought two. One of them was diseased. So then you have to go through a whole legal process. So we get these beautiful glimpses of day-to-day -day urban life uh, through texts. And then we get those hints of things happening. Uh, there's one Mesopotamian site where we have a text that talks about the gate of the unclean women. That's all we know. It's just a suggestion of something happening within the urban parameter that is not the thing that leaders might be telling you about. Um, and it's certainly not the kind of thing you could excavate because how would you ever know what happened there? But when you take those threads from everything from the, the little microscopic particles of dust being trampled by thousands of people to the stark implantation of structures in open spaces or the discard or disuse of places in contrast to prescribed expectations or the little fragments of text, whether it's in a cuneiform tablet or some graffiti that we have, for example, in Pompeii, we've got great graffiti that is about, you know, you should eat here or you should taste that wine or you should go and see that gal over there. Um, all of those things that really indicate.